Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, lately I've been trying to increase my tolerance for contamination. Ardell might tell you this isn't the area of self-improvement I should really go to work on first, pointing out my regular failure to wipe my shoes on the mat and the pile of dishes I've left yet again in the sink. I'm actually pretty good at contaminating things around our house. And yes, I do realize I'm embracing contamination as and the pandemic rages on. I'm guessing a concern about contagion is why Paul steered very clear of that gospel reading last week in which Jesus' disciples caused a stir because they didn't wash their hands properly before meals. It's funny how that wasn't among the verses that my father, the Bible professor, had us memorize when we were kids. If he had, I would have latched onto it with great fervor at the end of every summer day when mom called us in from our wiffle ball games and told us all to wash up for dinner. Oh, to go back in time so I could put on my best grimy little cherub face and say, but mom, I think we all know what Jesus said about hand washing. (laughs) Purity codes are as old as, well, I'm guessing they're about as old as dirt, literally. They almost certainly arose first as ways to keep a community safe from disease and infection. But Jesus pushed back against some of these practices in his own religious culture because they'd become weaponized. Some of them had been used to exclude certain people and help the so-called pure ones feel superior, even more beloved by God. So he violated especially some of the customs that grow up around the original practices. And he reached out intentionally to the people that these customs had designated as unclean. Read the Gospels. This is pretty central work to the ministry of Jesus, wouldn't you agree? But something else started to happen once the followers of Jesus began to embrace this critique of these holiness codes. Theology in ancient Judaism was grounded in practices. Practices like Sabbath keeping and Jubilee economics and what we now call keeping kosher. They were meant to help the community protect the vulnerable and reminded of the gift of the earth's fruitfulness and grounded in the sacredness of ordinary life-sustaining practices like eating together. Unfortunately, even practices as beautiful as these can be wielded to do the opposite of what they were made for. But as those early Christians began to shift emphasis from works and law toward faith and grace, another danger emerged, and it emerged right away. One way I've come to think about the shift is that the purity codes moved out of the realm of physical things, bodies and food and economics, and into the realm of ideas. Paul told the Ephesians that by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, it's essential that you understand that your salvation, your belovedness and acceptance by God is not something you've achieved for yourself or accomplished because of what you've done with your life. That was never the law's intent either. 
but we all want credit for the good things we do. So there is a certain appeal to thinking God's acceptance of us is at least, in part, a reward for our goodness. Well, it is if we think we've been good enough to be accepted, at least. The problem is that a theology of salvation by grace through faith can be turned on its head in the very same way the law had been. It's just that now, rather than proving my belovedness by God by pointing out how well I've followed all God's rules for living, I'll tell you about what I believe. I'll tell you about how much, I tr how much trust I have in Jesus or how much faith I have in the power of the cross. But look what's happened. If I think God accepts and forgives me now because I believe the right things, well, aren't we right back where we fell off the grace wagon before? We've just replaced the practices of the law with these beliefs that we hold in our heads. Faith is the new works. And what we find very quickly is that you don't actually need a complex system of practices and holiness codes to believe that you are one of the pure ones and that other sorts of people, they're the unclean. You can do the very same work with nothing more than an idea you hold in your head. I'm pure because I'm right. And let's be real. You can think you're pure because you're right about ethical issues or child-rearing strategies or how much you trust science in a pandemic or which party platform you ascribe to. Believing I'm pure because I hold the right opinions in my head has never been limited to the realm of religion, has it? Where and by what criteria do you make distinctions among yourselves, James asks us. You'll learn a lot about yourself if you can bear to answer this truthfully. Martin Luther famously called James an epistle of straw. His highest view of scripture was Luther thought this particular book was fit only to be burned because he thought it stood in opposition to the gospel of grace. But I don't think James was opposed to grace. He was wisely worried about purity codes moving over into the realm of ideas and then doing the very same divisive work the law has been used to do. I think it's helpful we read as much of James 2 as we did today. Because it gets to that famous line about faith without works of mercy being dead. And before that, it begins with this warning against ordinary favoritism. And James tells us the point of what he's about to say in the very first sentence. Do you remember it? He doesn't say, now you're being bad people when you show favoritism and God doesn't like bad people. What he says is this, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? You see the difference? James is saying, I don't think you believe what you say you believe. You don't even believe what you think you believe. And more broadly, he's saying that if you want to know what anybody believes, don't ask them. Watch them. So James looked around and he saw fellow Christians who said they believed in this radical leveling of humanity in the way of Jesus where there was supposedly no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And yet here were Jesus' people arranging themselves according to the same old criteria the world has always used. 
He could tell by their seating charts and the deference they paid to certain kinds of people who dressed certain ways that they didn't believe what they said they believed. It's not that you have to do good works to prove you have faith. It's just that no matter what you say you believe, what you actually believe will always out. Always. So all James is really asking is that people stop deceiving themselves. Start there with the truth your life is telling all the time. It's been more than 20 years since I sat in George Benjamin's Sunday school class at Grace Episcopal Church in Siloam Springs. George, George was the epitome of a small-town southern doctor and our family physician. When we realized my grandmother was in the hospital on what would be her last day, George was the one who ordered the ambulance transport so she could go on home and settle into her favorite chair and George was the one who would show up at the house a few hours later, search briefly for a pulse, and pronounce she'd gone from this world with a gentle amen. In other words, he was the kind of person whom you didn't just ask an opinion of, but someone whose responses to the world you watched, you paid attention to. Well, we were studying this passage from James one Sunday, and all these years later, I remember George clearly sitting on a folding chair at a table in the parish hall, all six foot five of him hunched over his Bible and seeming to wilt a little bit as, as the passage was read aloud. When we finished, he just looked up and said soberly, I have done this very thing, and I have done it in this very place as an usher. I don't remember anything else that was said that morning, but I do remember the rest of us had the sense not to say anything at all for a moment in the wake of what he'd just said. We just sat there in the unadorned truth that our lives belie every day what we say and even think we believe. More specifically, we say we affirm the dignity of every human being and then we don't in the myriad distinctions and favoritisms that tell us who we are all the time. And George's confession remains among the truest and most artless I've ever heard. St. James, you see, had reached somehow across 20 centuries in Martin Luther's cranky objections and still wrenched us out of our heads and into our lives. And I tell you, it was a moment of grace, not condemnation. Because as humbling as it was to sit with this gaping void of hypocrisy between what we say we believe and what our lives show so clearly to be the truth, what came crashing down for a minute was not our self-worth or our self-esteem. What fell were all those structures of distinction that we build up around our lives and others all the time. The structures of favoritism that continued to divide us not just from one another but from ourselves. So yes, I'm trying to increase my tolerance for contamination because I'm still really, really good at building purity codes that help block my view of what my life shows clearly that I really believe. Honestly, I think I can create a new holiness code, a new boundary between clean and unclean every time I fail to see another person's action or opinion as harmful or helpful in itself. And instead it becomes evidence that the person who did or said or thought that thing is in a category of people I despise or just think I'm better or more enlightened than. 
that category is the distinction that the way of Jesus and the truthfulness of James still have the power to bring down in our lives. I've seen it happen. So have you. And the real miracle of grace when it does is that we see that regardless of what we've been trying to convince ourselves that we believe, what we know deeper down is that we are all of us on the impure and imperfect side of all the boundaries we build. We're all waiting for Jesus to reach across them, even to the likes of us as we struggle. Or how did our colleagues just put it? Not to confide in our own strength or goodness or purity, but to make our boast of God's mercy, in which there truly are no distinctions, no favorites, no divisions, the one perfect mercy in which there is truly room for all of us. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.